0: Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the word this evening. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to your grace, grateful to your goodness, great, grateful for all the many things that you have uh, provided for us. Above all things, we're grateful for our salvation. We're grateful that we have a completed canon of Scripture and that by studying your word, we can gain an understanding of your plans and purposes for the human race. It gives meaning to our lives and helps us to understand uh, where you are taking us, uh, what our future holds. and how the time we spend on earth now living our Christian life fits into your overall plan and prepares us for our future role to rule and reign with you in eternity. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study that our thinking might be expanded and that that we might come to a more precise understanding of who you are and what you've done in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Revelation 11. Revelation eleven fifteen brings us to another one of those situations where that we see again and again in Revelation, where the scene shifts from the earth to heaven. It's a scene around the throne room. The uh, twenty four elders are the only ones mentioned, but we know from previous scenes, from following scenes, that the living creatures, the four living creatures, are there before the throne, as well as uh, the angels. Now, last time, we almost finished this section, but I I introduced a term and a word last time that I want to go back and review a little bit because it will help us tighten our understanding of the Trinity and it helps us understand a little bit about some of the things that are going on in this particular passage. In 1115, we read that the seventh angel sounded the trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, I want you to take a look at that passage. I want you to take a close look at it and answer the question, not out loud. Answer the question, who will reign forever and ever? Who is the he? Now, don't give me any kind of... Baseball routine on this. Who is he? Who is the he? That's the question. Okay. We have to get into some issues related to... Let me see if I even have this set up right here. Related to... uh, I think this has it. um, Related to the Trinity and how the Scripture talks about Jesus Christ as the Son and the Father. And at times passages seem rather ambiguous as to who is, being, uh, who is being talked about. And so I introduced us last time to a doctrine of perichoresis. Now before we get into that, I want to go back and briefly just define the Trinity. The term Trinity is not found anywhere in the Bible. It is a theological term that was coined by one of the early church fathers in the late 2nd century A.D. He used the Latin word Trinitas to express his understanding of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There was an understanding in the early church that the Father was God and the Son was God and the Holy Spirit was God, but they weren't asking those difficult questions of how do you put that together. They're simply restating what the scripture says in most cases, but nobody's asking the tough questions until about the middle to the end of the second century. And then as Christianity has spread throughout the Roman Empire, those who are the Greek philosophers and skeptics and others who were in opposition to Christianity began to ask them, well, how many gods do you have? Uh, You say you believe in one God, but you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It sounds like three gods to me. And so that forced the theologians and the apologists, which are terms that are used to describe this era, to begin to answer these questions and to define just what they meant by the the statement that God is one and how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit related to each other. And so it took about 200 years to work that out from 150 A.D. into the middle part of the 4th century Uh, A major step was taken at the Council of Nicaea in 325, but there were still battles that continued for about another uh, 125, 130 years after that. So when we have a definition of the Trinity, such as I have on the board, that God exists as a unity of essence with three persons. These three persons are co-equal. Usually we say they're co-equal, co-eternal and uh, co-infinite each person is distinct they are distinct persons with yet the unity is not compromised now we just can't really grasp that how can they be three distinct persons but be be one uh, in unity and so we usually say that God is one in essence and three in person. But I would suspect that when you and I conceptualize the Trinity, where we tend to go is more towards the three persons than the one in essence and the unity. And that's what is really brought out in this term that I introduced last time that is perichoresis. Perichoresis. And this is a Latin term, or excuse me, a Greek term, that simply means uh, interpenetration. And I'll put the de- definition up here on the screen for you. Per- perichoresis means interpenetration. And another big word, don't you love learning all these new words? You can try them out at work sometime. Uh, is circ- circumincession. Circumincession. Now, Somehow, when I went through seminary education, because as I've gone back and looked at a number of things that I have read, this terminology was all there, but it never penetrated. There was no interpenetration of perichoresis into my brain. And it wasn't until recently that I became acquainted with this, this term and this doctrine but it was originally used in the early part of the, uh, of the church age and became uh, a, 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 ten, a technical term for explaining the, how the unity of the Trinity worked. So perichoresis, we say in Trinitarian theology, relates to the intimate union between these three members of the Trinity, their mutual indwelling and mutual interpenetration. So that each is always in the other two. And what that means is that when you say something of one, you can it can be said of all three. So that there is this um uh, unity emphasized between the three. The term circumincession in another uh in the Oxford dictionary of the Christian Church Uh, which is sometimes spelled differently as they note, is they state that in Christian theology it's the technical term for the interpenetration of the three persons of the Holy Trinity. The corresponding Greek word perichoresis, literally meaning a proceeding around, was used by John of Damascus in this connection and was rendered into Latin as circumcessio by Burgundio of Pisa. Okay, just a little insight into church history, so these were terms this was both of these terms were used in the writings about the Trinity. Now it helps us to understand the Trinity a little better. I, I find that if you have a vocabulary word and you begin to understand the vocabulary word, you may not fully comprehend how everything works, but at least you have a term for it before Tertullian coined the word Trinitas for Trinity, they didn't have a word for it. And so even someone like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John did not have that vocabulary word. Now, that's a little difficult for us to understand, isn't it? That how in the world could Paul have written all of that? And yet we have a clearer understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity than perhaps he did because we have vocabulary to express it. That was lacking. And we've gone through those first four centuries of church history where they worked out the, uh, the definition. So, the second point I have is that if you've seen one person, you've seen all three because of this interpenetration of the other members of the Godhead into one another. Uh, one figure on the throne portrays the unity of the triune God. Jesus can therefore say to Philip in John chapter 14, verse 7, that when P- P- uh, Philip says, well, show us the Father, uh, 14, 14:8, 9, 14, 8 or 9, when he says, show us the Father, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need another manifestation. We are so close in that unity. So let's look at a couple of other passages that emphasize this in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is, that's neither Greek nor Hebrew, that's just a system that didn't transfer over when I copied it. That's echad, E-C-H-A-D, which means a unity of plurals. It's not a singularity. We think of, if something is one, we often think of a singularity. For example, I may hold up one pen, and we just think of it as a singular entity. But if I were to take a group of pens, that would be a plurality, but we use the plural to describe it. It's not one. But in Hebrew, the word echad has the idea of a unity of, of pluralities a unity of things viewed as one unified whole. And one place where we see that word used that helps us to understand it is in Genesis chapter uh, 2, verse 24, when God says of Adam and Eve that the two shall be joined together and be one flesh. There's that word, echad. It is a unity that comes about. Uh, that has as part of it uh, part of it different components, the word is used uh, several times in the Old Testament to describe the actions of a group, for example, when uh, Gideon, when God is speaking to Gideon and tells him that he would defeat Midian, God says that he would defeat Midian as one they would the 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 army of three hundred would operate as a single uh, operating force, a single unity, uh, operating as if they were just one. Uh, you have other passages such as the entire nation as referred to as one, and passages like Judges 20, verse 8, and 1 Samuel 11, uh, 7. So it has that idea of something that is integrally united. And when it refers to God, of course, it is a unity beyond anything that we can imagine. This is one of the problems that we have for all you prep school teachers with trying to use some of these illustrations that people try to use for, for the Trinity. Like water, it says one state it's gas and another state it's, it's ice and another state it's, it's a liquid. Or an egg, you have your white shell and our brown shell, depending on what the egg, or even a green shell. You've got green eggs. Um, you have your shell, you have the inner white, and you have the yellow yolk. But that's not, they, n- neither of those illustrations have an interpenetrating unity. So they just fall apart. We don't have anything within creation that we can use that really corresponds to that unity that God has when we're talking about the unity. Of the Trinity, and that's what Jesus is talking about in passages such as John twenty, John ten, twenty-eight to thirty. Now, I want you to notice what he says. John ten thirty is a well-known passage where Jesus says, "I and the Father are one." Now, that's a Greek word for one, but it's, he's communicating the same thing that was stated in Deuteronomy six four that God is one in John 10:28 he says i give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand and then he turns around and says the same thing about the father my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will able no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand there is what the son is doing the father is doing what the father is doing the son is doing they are acting as one and both holding us that the picture of being held in their hand is a picture of the power of God, the omnipotence of God in keeping us. God doesn't have a literal hand. We're not literally being held in his hand. It is a picture of of his power and his ability. And then Jesus concludes and says, I and the Father are one. There is an integral unity there that Uh, makes it very difficult for us to to understand because we've never seen anything like it. Now, let me give you an Old Testament example of how this this works. Turn in your Bibles to uh, to Exodus chapter 23. Turn back to Exodus chapter 23. Now, the situation here in Exodus is that God has appeared to the nation... They've all been brought up. They had to be sanctified, and they're all brought up before Mount Sinai, and God began to give them the law back in um, chapter 20, and he spoke to them, and we're told in Exodus 20, verse 1, God spoke Elohim, plural, generic term for God. God spoke all these words saying. Now, when we see Elohim with that plural, we need to think in terms of the Trinity. Because it's a plural noun that is a plural of, of uh, emphasis there. But many places, that's what we have in, Gen- in Genesis chapter 1. Many places you have God speaking, Elohim speaking, and he says, for example, Genesis 1, and 27, let us make man in our image. It's the one God, but he uses a plural pronoun. Well, here we have this interplay where Elohim spoke all these words saying and then uh Exodus 20, verse 2, "...I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage." So he introduces the Ten Commandments by reminding them of what he has done for them. He identifies himself by the covenant name Yahweh and says he is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, chapter twenty describes the Ten Commandments, and then chapters twenty-one and following uh, describe uh, other laws until we get down to chapter, the passage I want to look at, in chapter twenty-three. And you come look at chapter twenty-three, and you look down at verse twenty, and what happens in, at this point, is that. God is beginning to tell them what he is going to do for them. He's laid down the basic precepts of the civil law and some ast- a couple of aspects of the uh, ritual law, the, the feasts and the Sabbath. And then he says in verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. There's not an article with the word angel there, but that may not be significant. Verse 21 says, Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now, we studied this before that when you get into the scriptures and you read these, this reference to the name of God, the name of something, the, the Jewish idea was name represented something about the essence of something, the essence of someone. So when, um, Jacob is born, he's named Yaakov, meaning heel grabber, because he's grabbing at Esau's heel when he's when he's born he's the pretender the, the the one who's always grasping for things and you have uh, other other terms uh Isaac Yitzhak is called laughter because uh, Sarah laughed when she heard God say that she as an old woman was going to give birth uh, to a son so you have the 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 terms mean the names mean something they're not just uh they're not just tags like we have for, for things. It's not simply nomenclature. It represents something about the essence of something. So we, likewise, when you get into the New Testament, you say, believe on the name of Jesus. You're not just believing on just, just the, those five letters, J-E-S-U-S, and then somehow those five letters will save you. You're believing in the essence of who Jesus is as the second person of the Trinity who came to earth, died on the cross, became a man, died on the cross for our sins. So here you have a statement that the father speaking, or or, it's got to be the father. You have God, Yahweh speaking, saying that he will uh, lead with this angel, Beware of him, obey his voice, do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, ascribing to this angel that which only deity can do, forgive sin. For my name is in him. He's saying my essence is in him. So it's this angel mentioned in verse 20 is distinct from the God who is speaking. Now the problem that we have, is there's a verse over in John 1 that we're all familiar with. It's where um, John writes that no man has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten has explained him. And we've taken that verse and we've pushed it way too far because we've made it seem as if nobody ever had interaction with God the Father in the Old Testament. And I've gone back, and you, you'll see various people, and I may have done this in the past, where you attribute the personage who is speaking to Moses from Mount Sinai as well he as the as a son rather than the father. But here, there's a clear statement that the person speaking is divine. The angel being he's speaking about that he's sending before the Israelites is divine. So the angel has to be the angel of the Lord, which is clearly the second person of the Trinity. And then verse 22 says, but if indeed, if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversary. And then we look at verse 23 and he says, for my angel. Now it's clear there. It's not just any angel. It's my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Okay, so who is this angel? Well, if we go to Joshua, we notice that the Lord, Yahweh, speaks and gives direct commands to Joshua as to what he should do in terms of the conquest. What's interesting is in the entire book of Joshua, you don't find the word angel. But you do have this: in John 5:13 Joshua 5:13 rather, when Joshua is about to attack Jericho, he goes out from the camp and there is a man standing opposite him. but it's not a man, it's not a human being. Uh, verse thirteen reads, and I came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua goes to him and says, "Are you for us or for our adversaries?" Now, notice, it's not clear that he's looking at God. He thinks he's looking at a man. He's not sure who this individual is, even. So, he it is a. Uh, Christophany here, which is a term for an appearance of the second person of the Trinity who is appearing to him because this is not the Father, but he is appearing in the form of a man. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ. In In verse 14 we read, he said, that is the man, says, No, rather indeed I come now as captain of the host, that is the army of Yahweh. So he's clearly distinct from Yahweh, but he has divine prerogatives. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth. Anytime you have a human being attempt to worship an angel in the scripture, the angel always stops them because only God is worthy of worship. Does this personage try to stop Joshua from worshiping him? No, not at all. So the captain of the host of the Lord is clearly divine and recognized that Joshua fell on his face to the earth, bowed down and said, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And that probably should have been capitalized in the translation. Verse 15, the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet. Have we heard that anywhere else? Sure, on Mount Sinai, when Moses came up Mount Sinai into God's presence God said that he was to take his sandals off of his feet because he was on holy ground. Only God has that prerogative. So the captain of the Lord's host is clearly fully divine. This is not an angel. This is not a human being. It must be the second person of the Trinity who is distinct from the Father. Now, if you're in John or Joshua and you happen to turn over there, You should note that in the next chapter, that's the last part of chapter 5, when you get over into chapter 6, in the second verse, we're told the Lord, a different personage from this captain of the host, we're told that the Lord spoke to Joshua. And there it's Yahweh. And so you have, in the first part of Joshua, on the one hand, you have Yahweh speaking, communicating, directing, commanding Joshua. And then starting in chapter 5, you have another personage who is going to lead them and direct them in their combat against the Canaanites. And that must be the second person of the Trinity. Let's go back and look at Exodus twenty three three. God on Mount Sinai says to says to Moses, My angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. We have this man who is the actually the angel of the Lord appear in uh, Joshua five thirteen through fifteen to Joshua and then after the major campaigns are concluded and there is another gathering of the tribes for a covenant renewal ceremony at, um, at Gilgal, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim to meet with Joshua and said, I brought you up out of Egypt, led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Who said, I will never break my covenant with you? Well, if you go back to Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, all those passages where God makes a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, he asserts that he will never break that covenant. And if you look at those passages, it appears to be God the Father. It's unclear whether it's the father. You can't really distinguish and say, well, that's the father, that's the son. There's no form that's being seen in those passages. So here you have the angel of the Lord saying, I said to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the term fathers always refers to them, I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And he also said, I brought you up out of Egypt. Well, if... God says to Moses in Exodus 23 that I'm going to send my angel before you and he's going to give you victory. At the end of the campaign, the angel of the Lord says, I'm the one who gave you victory. It's got to be that same angel. And then when you add that to the passage we looked at in Joshua, it's got to be the captain of the Lord's army, which normally is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we have here? We have passages where there appears to be a certain ambiguity between the Father and the Son. Other passages make it can, have the Father claiming one thing, the Son claiming the same thing. This is the unity of the Trinity speaking. That that what is said of one or what one says is said to or ascribed to the other. Now I'll so you take you to one more passage. And this is in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, which is the same kind of scene that we have in Revelation 4 and 5, which is the throne room of God. And this is the scene where Isaiah is transported uh, to the throne of God. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, Filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Who's on the throne? Let's back up. Pay attention to the text. The Lord is sitting on the throne, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit got to be the father because the son doesn't take the throne until the end of the tribulation period so it's the father sitting on the throne verse 3 says holy 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 is the lord of hosts well who's the head of the, the host of the lord see th- that's where you get into this unity thing between the two it's the it's God the triune God sitting on the throne Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundation of the thresholds trembled, etc. Very similar to the scene in in uh, Revelation chapter 4. Now, remember Revelation 3.21. Jesus is speaking to the last church, the church of uh, Laodicea, and he says, "...he overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne." As I also overcame, which occurred before the cross, and sat down with my Father on his throne. So at the ascension, he sits with the Father on his throne. He doesn't take his own throne until the end of the tribulation period. Revelation 4, 8, we saw the same kind of scene that we saw in Isaiah 6. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings full of eyes around and within. Day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. But as soon as you get into Revelation 5.1, you see the father on the throne. And he's distinct from the lamb who comes before him and takes the scroll. So you have the distinction of the persons. But there's also this, and this tremendous unity. Now, did I leave it out? I left it out. I didn't get the slide in here. Okay, one verse that we need to go to that I didn't put up here is John twelve forty one. John twelve forty one, Jesus says these things Isaiah said because or, or excuse me, John says, after Jesus had spoken, quoting Isaiah, he said, These things Isaiah said because he, Isaiah, saw his glory. Whose glory? the glory of the son well when did isaiah see the glory of the son well the only time that isaiah saw the glory of god was there in isaiah 6 john says he saw that's when he saw the glory of the son but we can't say that's the son sitting on the throne can we it drives us to say that what we have is the is the godhead as God without distinguishing persons on the throne. God as God. Now, what this does is it allows us to preserve the unity of the Godhead, and also it allows us to realize that you actually have the Father showing up a lot more in the Old Testament than sometimes people uh, ascribe to him because of this uh, doctrine of perichoresis emphasizing that interpenetrating unity so that what is said of one is said and ascribed to all three. And that helps us to clarify and understand certain things uh, that we that we see in the passage. Now what got us started on this was I started looking at this passage again as I was preparing for tonight. In Roman, I mean in Revelation uh Get all the way back to the beginning. Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. There is a knee-jerk reaction we have when we first read that, that the he refers to Christ. Basic rule of grammar is that when you have a pronoun, it refers to its nearest antecedent. But here it can't it doesn't refer to Christ. It refers to the Lord, who is God the Father not to Christ. Now, we tend to think of it as Christ because we come to the text with this this premillennial understanding that Jesus is coming and he's going to establish his kingdom. He is, but his kingdom is also the kingdom of God the Father. It is the Son who is reigning, but it is also the kingdom of God. That's that perichoresis, the unity of the two, the interpenetrating unity of of the Godhead. Now let me show you why we must be forced to this conclusion, and it's based on just sound principles of exegesis and how the words are used uh, in Revelation. In Revelation chapter uh, 11 verse 17, The 24 elders speak, and they say, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty. And last time I traced through the use of the term the Almighty, the Pantocrator, and showed that this always refers to the Father in the book of Revelation. It is the Lord God Almighty who is on the throne, and in numerous passages, we'll see a couple of them again in a minute, in numerous passages you have this distinction between the one on the throne and the Lamb who's before him. So the one on the throne can't be the Father. And the term Almighty is always used of the one on the throne because ultimately it is God the Father exercising his sovereign justice over the earth that is bringing all things to conclusion. And then he will give, John chapter 5, he will give judgment all judgment to the Son. And the Son will then in turn take up the reins of Uh, power and rule over uh, his kingdom on the earth. So we saw this last time. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were. It doesn't say who is to come because, remember, it's a proleptic statement here where the the 24 elders are singing actually in the midpoint of the tribulation, and they are looking to the completion of, of the tribulation and putting themselves forward into the future, into that forward position, speaking of it as if it's its culmination is in the present. So they wouldn't say who is to come because they're speaking of that time when it has come. So you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So who does the you refer to here? First to God, the Almighty, the Father. You have taken your great power and have begun to reign. When at the end of the millennial kingdom, it is saying, You, the Father, the Lord God Almighty, have begun to reign. In Revelation 15, uh, verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, and the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. And here this is a term related, I believe, more to God's sovereign rule, the Father's sovereign rule, not the Son's messianic rule. You have to distinguish those. Because God rules over creation. The Father rules over creation. Revelation 19.6, this is at the time of the Battle of Armageddon when the Son is about to come to the earth, and... John says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters. This is the same imagery he has back in Revelation 4 and 5, the sound of a waterfall like Niagara Falls, and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. It's not the sun because the sun's coming on a horse. This is talking about the Almighty on the throne. Verse 15 talks about the son for from his mouth comes a sharp sword that with it, he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty very clear that the one who is going to rule with a rod of iron is distinguished from God, the almighty who is the father. Now, To remind you that phrase, rule them with a rod of iron, is a term that comes out of Psalm 2. And it is used in Psalm 2, verse um, 9, the bottom verse on the screen. You shall break them with a rod of iron. The speaker, starting in verse uh, 7, middle of verse 7, is the Father. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, the Father says, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That is the Son, the anointed in verse 2, the Messiah. So as we look at and pull this together, what we see is that the, Father is the Almighty. He is going to begin His reign and He reigns through the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and His establishment of the Messianic Kingdom uh, upon the earth. Now let's go to the next verse, which is verse 18 which states, and the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. Now what we see here, you have one reference to the wrath of the Lamb in the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6. And then elsewhere you have a reference, as we just saw in Revelation 19, uh, 15, the wrath of God the Almighty. And this describes the judgments that are poured out on uh, the, on the earth during the tribulation period. And it's summarized here, the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. Wait a minute, your wrath came, that's tribulation, the time for the dead to be judged, isn't that great white throne judgment? Uh, the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, isn't that at the end of the tribulation? And... Uh, so how do we understand this? It is a summary statement that the, that the 24 elders are praising God and they're summarizing what God has done in history is that he has brought this judgment to finalize the rebellion against him. And he has brought this judgment and with that and the culmination of the seventh trumpet, which are the bold judgments, there will be a time of reward and a time of judgment. He is not specifying the distinctions. He is just making a summary statement that there is going to be a judgment coming and there is future accountability. Now, a couple of things we should note about verse 18 is that two different forms of the word orge, the noun, are used. Orgizo, the verb, which means to become angry, and orgay. orge. Uh, which means wrath or anger. We said the nations were enraged and your wrath came. So there's the conflict between the nations, the kings of the earth, gathering against God. Uh, the nations were enraged, your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. It just summarizes very briefly what happens at the end of the tribulation period. Now the use of the word orge is important. It has the idea of wrath or anger as a state of mind. It's a mental state. Okay? It is, it is actual. It's not God being emotional and flying off the handle. It is an expression, an idiom for the execution of his justice. And it is in contrast to the Greek word thumos, another word that is sometimes translated anger or indignation. And that has the idea of wrath as an outburst uh, of a vengeful mind or a more of an emotional, uh, more of an emotional state. Now, Revelation 11:18 ties back to what we see pictured in Psalm two, one and two. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord the Father, and against his anointed. So Psalm 2 is a prophecy. It's proleptic. It's, the writer is looking at this future end-time event as if it is happening in his present-time situation. So he's expressing the same kind of viewpoint as we see in this the, the hymn of the 24 Elders. Psalm 2.3 goes on to say, let us, this is the motto of the the nations, let us tear their fetters apart. That is, they view God as restricting them. We hear that more and more in Western civilization today. We want to resist God because he just wants to spoil our party. Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. But God's response is he sits in the heavens and laughs and scoffs at them, and then he will uh, turn the kingdom over to his son. That's the remainder of the psalm, which we've gone through before. So 1118 says the nations were enraged, your wrath came. And then following that at some general time, there's a summation here of the judgment of the dead and reward of the bondservants, the prophets, and the saints and those who fear your name. Now, the bondservants, the prophets, would refer to Old Testament believers and and the prophets, and the saints and those who fear your name would refer to tribulation believers. The church isn't present here because the church has already been raptured and rewarded at the Bema seat, and they are, they return with the Lord. So they're not, um, Envision here, this is a reference to Old Testament believers who are resurrected at the end of the tribulation and the tribulation martyrs who are resurrected at that time. Uh, and then uh, to reward them and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So there, the emphasis is on the destruction of those who are against God. That would include. Judgment on both the fallen angels and judgment on the earth dwellers who have rebelled against God. Now, there's another similar summary passage in Daniel. Notice how you, to, to get to re- understand Revelation, you got to tie in all these Old Testament prophecies. They, they all get pulled together in, uh, in Revelation. In Daniel 12, 1 and 2, we read, Now, at that time, Michael... The great prince, he is uh, one of the uh, chief angels who is uh, related to his job is um, related to protecting Israel. The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation till that time. Jesus says almost the same thing in Matthew 24 related to the tribulation of time. Unlike any other time in history, how in the world anybody, can come along and say that the tribulation occurred with the judgment on Israel in 70 AD is beyond me that's that's a view called preterism and i've recently heard of a, of one doctrinal pastor who has thrown out his dispensationalism and his zionism and his good sense and has gone after Liberal, leftist, British, preterists, and is now teaching full bore preterism at his and and denying it out of one side of his mouth and teaching it out of the other. We truly live in an age that that uh, every day holds new surprises and idiocy. Um, The tribulation is a time is never ever experienced before in history now. The destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70 was clearly terrible, but it was not unique. It was not a once in in all of history kind of destructive event. But the tribulation will be, and it's a time unlike any other time. So this phrase uh, refers to a time of distress such as never occurred. That's the tribulation. And at that time, the angel says, your people... Everyone who is found written in the book, that is, everyone who is saved, will be rescued, your people being Israel. It's talking about the salvation of the living Jews at the end of the tribulation period. goes on to expand, verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. That is the resurrection of Old Testament saints. These to everlasting life, but the others, that is those who have uh, not been found written in the book, the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So that brings us to an understanding of the doctrine of judgments. And I have a nice little chart here to help point out these judgments. Here's a timeline. On the left, we have the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection. And then we have a timeline that indicates the different ages or dispensations. We are currently living in the church age. We don't know where we are in the church age, but we suspect we're somewhere closer to the end than the beginning. The church age will end with the rapture of the church, where we will meet the Lord in the air And this is when we will go through the judgment seat of Christ. This is the first judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. Then there will be the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation period that ends with the second coming of Christ. Now, during the tribulation period, there are three... Are during, after the Church Age, actually, well, I don't know how you articulate that, but there are four resurrections. Two of which are truly in the have to do with the tribulation. The other two would be before. The first resurrection is Christ. He's the first fruits, according to First Corinthians 15. No one was resurrected before that. The Greek word Anastasis for resurrection is uh, unique and distinct, and only refers to an eschatological event or the resurrection of Christ where complete new life is taken on. So he is the first. Then there's the resurrection of church-age believers at the rapture called the ex-anastasis in Philippians chapter 3, the exit resurrection. Then there's the resurrection of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 when they are resurrected and taken to heaven. And then there's the resurrection of Old Testament and Tribulation saints that occurs at the end of the Tribulation period. Now there's a judgment at the end of the Tribulation period called the uh, Judgment of the Sheep and the Goats. Just before the Judgment of the Sheep and the Goats, the Antichrist is cast into the Lake of Fire, and the false prophet is cast into the lake of fire. At the sheep and the goat judgment, the surviving Gentiles are judged and they are separated from believer and unbeliever. Surviving Jews are judged, separated believing, believer from unbeliever. Old Testament saints will be judged and will be rewarded and tribulation saints will be judged and rewarded. Then we have the Millennial Kingdom. The Millennial Kingdom is followed by a second resurrection of the unsaved. And at that time, there is the final judgment, which is the great white throne judgment, which is composed of the unsaved dead. Uh, Just prior to that, need to change the order of events here, just prior to that, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire for his eternal punishment, then the present heavens and earth are destroyed and the new heavens and new earth are set up. So those are the judgments and the resurrections. Now at the judgment seat of Christ, at the Bema seat, there are going to be a variety of different rewards that are handed out to those who believers who have advanced spiritually. Now it doesn't matter how far you've advanced, but that you're advancing because some believers won't have been believers for very long, but they will have been positive and they will have been growing. Other believers will have been believers for a long time, and maybe they spent some time uh, in disobedience, but uh, maybe they recovered and and uh, grew and matured, and on that basis there will be a handing out of rewards. And these are, a series of these are listed at the end of the seven letters to the seven churches. For example, to the church of Ephesus, uh, the Lord promised to him who overcomes, that is to a maturing, victorious believer, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This is not talking about getting eternal life, but access to the tree of life, a special privilege in a special area within heaven known as the paradise of God. That's all we know about it. It is the term paradise refers to a uh, especially beautiful garden area. Uh, To the second church, the church of Sardis, Jesus said he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. This is a way of saying that they won't be hurt, but they will be uh, actually they will be rewarded and they will receive the crown of life. We'll see that under crowns in just a minute. Revelation two seventeen, Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And we studied this when we went through these passages. And the, the white stone uh, picks up a certain imagery from the culture that... For an athlete or someone who had been rewarded with something, this was like a ticket into a special event. And so this white stone represents that access to special privileges, uh, also represented by the hidden uh, manna. In Revelation 2.26, I believe this is to Thyatira, him who overcomes... I will give authority over the nations, ruling and reigning responsibilities. Revelation three five, the church of Philadelphia. He who overcomes, will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not. Excuse me. This is the church at uh, Smyrna. Uh, I think that's Smyrna and Sardis. Back to this is Sardis. He who overcomes, will thus be clothed in white garments, a special. Uh, uniform. I will not erase his name from the book of life, which is a way of stating by a negative a positive that he will certainly receive eternal life. I will confess his name before my Father and before His angels. He will be praised before God. Revelation 3:12 is the Church of Philadelphia. He overcomes. I will make him a pillar. And the temple of my God, he will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven for my God and my new name. So there are these special privileges, special access that are given to the overcomers. Uh Revelation 321, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And Revelation twenty-one seven, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So it's connected to these inheritance rewards for the the believer. Then we have crowns mentioned, the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4:8, the crown of of uh, life in James 1:12, and the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5:4. And this speaks of the judgments and the rewards. Final judgment for unbelievers is at the great white throne judgment. The dead are brought out of Hades and torments where they have been kept. And they will be brought before the great white throne where it will be determined if their name is in the book of life. If it is not, then they will be evaluated to see if their works are good enough to get into heaven. Now, we got 30 seconds left. So I'm going to say this fast. I've said it before. Some people haven't gotten it yet. The term works is a neutral term. It can mean good deeds. It can mean bad deeds. If it means good deeds, then the word good is in front of it. If it means bad deeds or dead works, then a negative adjective is in front of it. If there's no adjective, it just means works. Includes everything done, good and bad. And it's all piled up. And God somehow has the deficits and the credits all organized in such a way that he's going to come up with the sum total and say, okay, you've got this much, but, you know, you have to have, you know, 100 miles higher before you can come into heaven because your righteousness doesn't meet the righteous qualification of God. It's not that they're judged for their good works per se or human good, it's that do they have enough works of any kind to measure up to the righteous standard God God demands for anyone who's going to come into heaven? And it doesn't matter if sin's there or not because it's the sum total of their work and it's going to add up. It, it, they're not being judged for human good. They're not being judged for sin. They're being evaluated to see if they've got enough brownie points to get into heaven. And they don't. And so they are sent to the lake of fire because they're still spiritually dead and under condemnation and because they lack the righteousness of Christ and all their works aren't good enough to get them into heaven. And so that's the final judgment that is being summarized there at the end of uh, Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 11. And then we come to the last verse, which really should be the first verse of the next chapter, they just broke the chapter in the wrong place because there is a new action that takes place. It's totally different from what we just looked at. And that is the uh, revelation, the unveiling of the temple of God in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant that is in heaven. And we will see the significance of that that really ties to what happens in the next chapter, and we'll begin with that next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to have our thinking sharpened a little bit as we think about who you are and, and the relations, interrelations between the uh, members of the Trinity and the unity of the Trinity, as well as to recognize that there is an evaluation for each of us at the judgment seat of Christ and that the task before us is to be prepared and to be pursuing spiritual maturity that we might be ready for the assignments that you have for us in the Millennial Kingdom. We pray that we would be challenged by these things in Christ's name. Amen.